Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. Please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. We've got a really special episode this week I'm very excited about. Tell us about it. I am super stoked as well. First up, we are going to be discussing the excellent election results that just came out of the Virginia primaries this week. Then we're going to be talking about some not so excellent bills passed by Texas Republicans that would allow them to subvert elections in the state's largest county. But the reason why we're so excited is that our guest this week is North Carolina Congressman Wiley Nickel, who was first elected to the 13th district last year. We are going to be talking about his unlikely win, what the future holds for him, what he thinks Republicans are going to do with gerrymandering in his state, and much, much more. Excellent, excellent episode and interview coming up. So let's get rolling. Beard, I don't know how many times I've said it so far this year, but we had another freaking great election night. What's going on? I know, I know. I'm sure some point the the worm will turn and we'll have some bad ones, but I'm just going to keep pushing that as far down the road as possible because this is much more fun. Yeah, this is way more fun. I'm not even going to think about it. Let's think about Tuesday night, Virginia primaries. Multiple conservative Democratic dinosaurs lost bids to more progressive opponents, but obviously by far the most important to go down in flames was Joe Morrissey. Former delegate LaCherise Aird absolutely crushed him by a 69-31 margin. We have devoted a lot of time on this show to just how awful Joe Morrissey is. More than anything else, though, well, you know what? It's actually very hard to pick what the worst thing about Joe Morrissey is, whether it's his many, many scandals, the fact that his estranged wife is now in divorce allegations, claiming that he had abused her and in fact had sex with her when she was still just 17 years old, or the fact that he calls himself pro-life and had held himself out as a possible ally to Republicans who wanted to ban abortion to at least one degree or another in Virginia. Anyway, he's gone. He's done. And what this means is that Democrats will no longer ever have to rely on Joe Morrissey again. They only have a 22 to 18 margin in the Senate. But what that means is that even if they lose a seat this November, they'll still have 21 reliable members in the caucus, which means that they won't be at risk of a situation where you have a 20 to 20 vote and the far right lieutenant governor gets to break ties. And that was always a threat with Morrissey. And look, he could still have yet another political comeback in him. He has had many in the past, including running for office when he was in jail, which he managed to do successfully. So I guess you can't rule that out, but he's getting up there in years at this point. And this was just a thumping. He had defied and confounded political observers for years with his ability to survive in spite of everything. But losing more than two to one, I'd like to think his career is over. Yeah. And I think 
one of the old phrases is sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I think that really was part of the case here where because of the fact that the Senate was 21 to 19 before Democrats won that special election, the fact that he was then the deciding vote on things like potential abortion legislation and other things really made the fact that he was this huge embarrassment and this risk on all these issues so much brighter. His attempted run for Congress, I think, was a huge mistake from his part just to raise his profile, which is really what he wouldn't have wanted, because I think oftentimes he had skated through in these like low turn elections based on some very small number of alliances and, and interpersonal relationships. And once it became a broader, you know, race with issues that were really important to people, and then you had a great candidate like Aridin, it was really, he had no chance at that point. And I don't think any comeback is going to let him get back to what used to make him successful. I think that's a really good point. And in a way, it reminds me a little bit of what happened with the IDC in New York. That was the group of renegade Democrats in the state Senate here who had for years propped up the GOP and sided with Republican leaders against the rest of their party. And in the Trump era, once their actions became I don't know, better known, like you said, more sunlight, uh, you know, cast down upon them, uh, then people started seeing, oh, wow, you're actually propping up the bad guys and we don't want you around anymore. And yeah, I think like Morrissey, you know, he was really a political cockroach. And I think that analogy is apt in more ways than one, because I think he, like you say, he thrived in the darkness and not in the light. And it really turns out, I think the IDC analogy is goes even a little bit more broadly because multiple conservative or more moderate Democratic incumbents lost on Tuesday night in Virginia. In fact, five incumbent state senators lost their primaries. That was as many in a single night as had lost primaries over the last two and a half decades. And the end result is that the Democratic caucus is going to get a lot more progressive overall. One of the real shock upsets was longtime state senator Chap Peterson, who was defeated by Saddam Salim by a 54-46 margin, despite outspending his opponent more than five to one. Peterson is one of these old school guys who flipped a seat held by Republicans in Northern Virginia back in 2007, and he never really seemed to grasp the notion that Northern Virginia had just become a lot bluer over the years. In fact, the district that he wanted to continue representing, had voted for Joe Biden with 70% of the vote. And by the way, as an aside, I should note that this is the first time that Virginia is holding elections on new maps. So a lot of these incumbents were facing new constituents, but that wasn't Peterson's only problem by any stretch. In 2021, when Democrats still had control of all of Virginia's state government, he helped kill a ban on assault weapons. He was always bad on guns. And there's this quote from him from the AP at the time. He said, quote, I may have been a Joe Manchin type, but I was one of a few Joe Manchins in the Senate. I mean, the Senate defeated a number of House bills that we thought were overreaching, but that's kind of our role. I mean, no, it, it, it really isn't. Your role is to represent your constituents and to pass good legislation and to make Virginia proud. It's not this sort of, <laughs> I don't know, fantasy DC beltway pundit idea of the Senate being the saucer that you know cools the teacup that they talk about with the US Senate and the House of Representatives. So it seems that Peterson just, just really had a mistaken idea of what his role as a legislature was supposed to be. And he wasn't the only one. Yeah, I think Peterson, despite way outspending his opponent, just never had a good message beyond sort of his generic 
mansion moderateness. And Salim, who I didn't really know much about before last night, just has a great story and clearly was able to get that out there despite not having as much money as Peterson. He immigrated from Bangladesh in the wake of floods when he was eight years old with his family. His family was homeless on the streets of DC for a time when he was young. Friends took them in and he ended up going to you know middle school and high school um, in Fairfax County, did you know a lot of incredibly impressive stuff you know, had to learn English, you know, because when they were evicted, nobody in the family spoke English, so they didn't know what was happening as a result of them. And then they became homeless. So it's just a great, great story. And I think he's going to be a huge upgrade on Peterson. Yeah, there's just no question about that. And Peterson and Morrissey weren't the only more moderate to conservative Democrats who lost. There was one incumbent versus incumbent matchup between Senators Louise Lucas and Lionel Sproul. Lucas, who is the much more liberal of the two, won 53 to 47. As the Washington Post put it, Sproul had the, quote, habit of walking off the floor to avoid voting on LGBTQ plus rights measures. And in this Washington Post piece, it actually just links to a vote on a particular bill that lists the roll call and Sproul is listed as the one person who's absent, which I just thought was a a nice nerdy way to damn him. And Sproul had claimed he's not anti-gay. He said, quote, I have people in my family that way. That's their choice. I mean, talk about being out of step. Do we even need to, 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 to get into why that kind of statement just sounds so, so wrong? Anyway, he's going to be gone too now. Yeah, the only thing I'll say about that is that if he so desperately doesn't want to vote in the state Senate, he doesn't have to anymore. He doesn't have to vote on anything anymore. So go (laughs) take your retirement. Well, one other person who soon will not be able to vote on anything in the state Senate anymore is the one Republican senator who lost, and that was Amanda Chase. Now, in a way, this is bad news. I put air quotes around bad. She is a disaster train wreck of a human being. She called herself Trump in heels. And she had made enemies of pretty much every single other member of the Republican Party. Her caucus absolutely despised her. The only reason why I say this is bad news is that had she won renomination, it's possible that Democrats could have made her district competitive. It's still not really very friendly turf, though. So even if Chase had been the nominee, the race probably wouldn't have come online. She lost very narrowly, though, 39-38 to former state Senator Glenn Sturdivant. But there will be a pretty considerable playing field of competitive races. There are at least four races that are almost certainly going to be up for grabs in November, several more that could come online on either side. The Senate is really close. Like I mentioned, Republicans only need two seats to take control again, because if there's a 2020 tie, the lieutenant governor can break ties. The House is also very close. Republicans hold a 52-48 majority there. So Democrats need three seats to take outright control of the House. There wasn't the same kind of intense primary action on the House side on Tuesday night, but there will be an even bigger playing field in November, and we will take a deep dive into those races very soon as well. Yes, that'll be the the big legislative races of the fall is obviously in Virginia, where both chambers are going to be up for grabs. You know, Glenn Youngkin would love to take over the state Senate and hold the House to pass a bunch of Republican legislation and then last minute run for president or something. So you know, there's going to be a big fight there. And Democrats are going to want to, you know, take over the House and prepare for 2025 elections, you know, with an open governor's race. 
So that does it for our Virginia wrap up, but there is one other important state we want to talk about, and that is Texas, where Republicans just passed some extremely retrograde bills that are pure and simple designed to undermine democracy. Yeah, Texas, of course, has a long history of going after voting rights and making it hard for people of color, college students, et cetera, to vote. Basically, anyone who might vote for Democrats, they don't want you to vote. They just want Republicans to vote. And in the latest line of attacks, GOP Governor Greg Abbott just signed two pieces of legislation that would you know, attack these voting rights further. Both of them go after a single county in Texas, Harris County, which is home to Houston and more than 4.7 million people. And of course, it's also a county that's been shifting left since the Trump era. Now, normally county officials have very wide authority in Texas when it comes to running elections in their jurisdictions. And under Democratic leadership recently, Harris County has made voting more accessible. But of course, as I said, Republicans don't want that. So the first of these new laws empowers Republican Secretary of State Jane Nelson, who is an Abbott appointee, to take over almost every aspect of election administration. And she can do that basically with very, very little pretext. All she needs is a candidate or party, like the Republican Party, to file a complaint. And all she needs is good cause to believe that a recurring pattern of problems with election administration or voter registration exists in the county. But she doesn't have to prove that. She just has to sort of believe it. So basically, she can just take this power based on the flimsiest of complaint from the Republican Party and take over basically all of the running of Harris County elections. And who knows what sort of restrictions, what sort of changes, what sort of polling place closures that she might go and enact once she takes control of elections in Harris County. So that's a huge, huge problem. But even if that doesn't happen, the second bill also significantly alters who runs elections in Harris County. That law abolishes the position of election administrator, which is a nonpartisan official that's been appointed by county lawmakers. It gets rid of that and instead reverts it to the elected county clerk and tax assessor. Now, while Democrats hold those offices currently, of course, Harris County has been very competitive in recent years, so there's every possibility that Republicans could win back those offices and run the elections by winning those, those next county elections. And of course, the way that these laws were targeted, it of course doesn't say Harris County in the bill, but the first bill only applies to counties with at least 4 million residents, and the second only applies to counties with more than 3.5 million residents. The second largest county in Texas is Dallas County. It only has a population of 2.6 million. It's way below the threshold. So obviously these are very specifically targeted towards Harris County and towards the blue shifting Harris County that Republicans are mad about. You know, that bit about reverting power over elections to the tax assessor is kind of wild, right? Why why the tax assessor? So our Daily Coast Elections colleague, Stephen Wolf, wrote about this. And it turns out that the tax assessor's role historically was a relic of Jim Crow because the tax assessor was responsible for maintaining voter registration rolls. Why the tax assessor? Because they assessed poll taxes. I mean, holy crap. So this system of having the clerk and the tax assessor run elections apparently has been done away with in all of Texas's major counties. So this represents just a, a bizarre, bizarre rollback. And of course, you could understand why Republicans like it. Yeah. Does it surprise me that Republicans are doing this? No, but it's still outrageous. Yeah, there are, of course, promised legal challenges. Uh, opponents say that the Texas state constitution 
prohibits laws that single out a specific jurisdiction. And that may be why Republicans have tried this absolute nonsense with these population thresholds and also doing arbitrarily different ones in each bill, 4 million in one and 3.5 million in, in the other to try to claim that they really aren't targeting just Harris County. Any reasonable judge you'd think would find that, yeah, no, this really does target an individual county. I would say, though, that the Texas state courts have to be just about the worst in the nation, if if not the worst. And the there are some red states where the Supreme Courts are conservative, but at least potentially reasonable. Texas isn't one of them. Texas is just a far right partisan hack court that really will rubber stamp just about anything that Abbott and the legislature do. So I'm not optimistic here. Really, there's uh, there's just not a lot to say. This is just more bullshit. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree completely that it's very hard to see the Texas Supreme Court coming to help, even if there's some very clear reasons why this legislation is unconstitutional. And so, like we've seen in places like you can fight through a lot of these types of voter restrictions. That doesn't mean you should have to. I want to be clear on that. These laws are crap. But the fact that they're there doesn't mean that Democrats can't still do well in Harris County. They just have to fight even harder to do so. Well, that does it for our weekly hits. Coming up, we have a very exciting interview. It's a first for the down ballot. We are going to be talking with North Carolina Congressman Wiley Nickel, who was first elected to office just last year. We have a huge range of topics to discuss with him. This is going to be a blast. Please stay with us and join us again after the break. We are thrilled to welcome freshman Congressman Wiley Nickel on the down ballot today. Congressman Nickel represents North Carolina's 13th congressional district in the Southern Raleigh suburbs. Thank you so much for joining us today, Congressman. Hey, it's great to it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I'm personally very happy that our first congressman to be on the show is from North Carolina, of course, my home state. So that's great news for me personally as well. So thank you for joining us. You know, I mean, listen, North Carolina is going to be the center of the political universe. So I'm glad you guys are starting with North Carolina here. So to take us back a little bit, you're obviously a freshman congressman, but you first announced a run for Congress in October of 2021. And at that point, in an, in an old map, you announced for a, an open, safely blue district. And then in February of 2022, the North Carolina Supreme Court struck down that map. It was gerrymandered by the Republicans, of course, and and ended up creating a reconfigured, highly competitive 13th district, the one you, of course, now represent. So take us through sort of that process of announcing for one district, having the map change, deciding to run in this new, very competitive district, and how that changed your race to go from a blue seat to this very, very tough seat. Yeah, I mean, we, what the, the thing you can count on for North Carolina is that it's always going to be a roller coaster. We seem to redraw our maps every two years. So we knew courts were going to step in because the Republican maps were, you know, absolutely unfair. They, they violated our Constitution. So we knew that, you know, the place we were with these maps when we started wasn't where we were going to finish. And, you know, we ended up winning, flipping one of just six Republican seats, you know, that, that flipped in this last election. And it turned into one of these these races that really was a bellwether for where we are as a country with, you know, MAGA extremism and, and women's rights. Now, of course, since you jumped into this very competitive seat, 
got through the primary, you end up matched against a Republican where a lot of money was going to be spent on his behalf. But it was a little bit of a strange Republican, Bo Hines, sort of a junior varsity version of Madison Cawthorn. Of course, everybody remembers him. So what was it like to run against a 27-year-old MAGA candidate who is largely known for, for playing college football in the area? It's got to be a much stranger race than running against, say, you know, a state senator or a county commissioner or something. I, I mean, it, it was just weird. Uh, you know, our, our opponent, Bo Hines, was one of those just extremely far-right Republicans. He, he campaigned with Trump, you know, his, had Trump's endorsement, was 100% pro-Trump. And, and, I, and I just had these these nightmares every night that, you know, we were going to lose this race and this guy would, would be here in Congress, you know, voting to overturn an election. Uh, so I had a lot of motivation. But, you know, we, we just campaigned on our values. And it was one of these races where, you know, we really didn't get a lot of national support early on and really up until the end. So we just knew we had to just focus on two things. And we just campaigned on women's rights and, and MAGA extremism and pro-democracy Republicans you know, came and, and voted for me. And that, that was, you know, a big part of our, our coalition to, to winning in a race like this. And I think it was one of the, the races that, you know, really could have gone either way and tells you a lot about where we are as a country. when we talk about the extreme, you know, far right, you know, approach of so many of the Republicans today. You know, last week we had on a couple of guests from the progressive data firm Catalyst, and they talked about their analysis showing that extremist Republican candidates paid what they called a MAGA tax. And I absolutely love that phrase. Do you think Bo Hines paid a MAGA tax in your race? Yeah, I think so. And, and we, we, uh, we, we wanted to collect that, that those tax dollars from our voters um, <laughs> because- because that's what we, you know, the, the thing for me, and I've worked on a lot of presidential campaigns as a staffer, you know, you want to know what a campaign's about at the end. If, you, if, you're, if you're asking yourself, what was that campaign about? You know, you're doing something wrong. And, and I think you really just have to focus on issues. And, and we made sure everybody knew about his, his position that, you know, he wanted to ban abortion. We spent the last few weeks debating his, his plan to have essentially rape panels for abortion, you know, access for for women who were raped you know good rapes bad rapes this just horrible position of of you know a case-by-case determination so um you know that's that's our that's that's the job of any campaign i think to to make sure folks know where where your opponent stands you just mentioned that you had previously worked on presidential campaigns i'd love to hear a little bit about that and then maybe you can also tell us what you learned is different about being the candidate versus being a staffer you know i mean it's they're they're both a lot of hard work um i I think being a, a candidate after being a staffer you appreciate all the jobs that everybody has because you've done most of them yourself that for me was just just knowing everyone's role and, and making sure you just do your role as a candidate. And that means focusing on the things that you can control as a candidate and, and trusting a really good staff. And by the way, we had a really great staff. This this was one of these these races that really was within the field margins. The the work we did organizing made a difference. The turnout work we did made a difference. You know, we had huge support from organized labor. They came in and knocked you know, close to fifteen thousand doors for us, but you know, just just making sure you're building a big coalition mattered, and and when you've done all those jobs, it's a lot easier to get that stuff moving. So 
forecasters rated your race somewhere between a toss up up to even likely Republican. And of course, some in the middle at, at lean Republican. So it definitely looked like if, you know, outside observers thought it was going to be very tough for you to win. But you ended up winning 52 to 48. So obviously very close, but a, but a clear victory. So take us through that election day and election night as those results were coming in, you know, what you were thinking and feeling and when you knew you had actually won the election. Well, I mean, number one, I just want to say I, I am a, a total political nerd. I love every bit of data that I can get out of Daily Cause. So I, I appreciate that. Um, and, and I'm someone who just constantly is trying to, to learn as much as I can about how we do elections. Um, so thank you for that. You know, our, but our race, Cook Report, I think, is is one of the good places where you can really get a good idea of where places stand. And they, they had our races a toss up the whole time. But you had places like 538.com who, you know, had a, gave me a 20% chance of winning on election day. They, they had some goofy stuff with how they looked at these races that I didn't like. Um, but it was one that you know, most people didn't think up until the end we could win. You know, it's an off-year election. You, you know, it's a Republican seat. But for us, you know, we just you, you just have to take a leap of faith and believe in North Carolina. And we just knew if we gave voters a choice in, in our race, they'd make the right choice. But it was amazing. We we had no idea how it was going to go. Uh, a three-point win was a huge win for us in this district. I think it was something close to 9,000 votes. So it was was out of the recount range. It was out of the. We knew we had it on election night, and uh, and just one of those amazing nights because we got to send a message. And that's anyone who works in politics, all they want is to have one chance to to send a message about where we are as a country, women's rights, on MAGA extremism, and we got to send that message with the win, which was really the best part. Congressman, thank you for your very kind words about the uh, analysis and data that we turn out here. I love hearing that you are a fellow election nerd. So I got to ask, when you guys are sitting there on election night or maybe standing around on election night following the results, were there any particular precincts or neighborhoods or towns that you were looking at as bellwethers? I mean, this is the kind of in the weeds stuff that I know that our listeners love to hear about. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, you know, we, we did about what we thought we would do in, in three of the more Republican counties. We were looking at Southern Wake and, and Holly Springs and Apex and Cary, where we, we overperformed. And, you know, that was that was the result of a lot of work. Turnout, you know, tons of volunteers. I mean, we, we, we really knew this was the, the, the race that could go either way. So we had people from all over the state coming and rolling up their sleeves but, uh, you know, I think Southern Wake is going to be a bellwether for a lot of races in North Carolina and one that, you know, really is, we, we think we have the fastest growing congressional district in the country right now. So the, the growth we're seeing, you know, really, you know, matters in a, in a district like mine. But, but I think for the state too, you know, you should definitely be looking at how, how folks do in places like Southern Wake County. Now, you've been in office for about six months. And of course, you were previously a state senator, so you know some about being an elected official. But what surprised you the most about being in the United States Congress so far? You know, you know I mean, as a, I work for two White Houses, so you know, I understand the pace here. The thing that I think is the most amazing is the other people I serve with, the freshman Democrats. There's 36, I think, of us, you know, freshman Democrats, and we all really like each other. We spend a lot of time together. It's folks who have varying, you know, very different districts, but we're all incredibly supportive. And that, you know, that group and, and, and with the rest of the House Democrats, too, it's been 
an absolutely amazing you know start to Congress because of the people I serve with. That that really has been the best part, and I think it, it, it says a lot about where we're going in this next election. And I think for folks listening, you know, they should know we are going to take back control of uh, the U.S. House. Hakeem Jeffries will be the next Speaker of the House. But it's because we have such a great group that really, you know, I've read about drama in the last Congress, but I haven't seen any of it. It's really just been a ton of support, you know, and it's hanging out with folks like Maxwell Frost. I, I took him to a, a, a concert for the National and did shots. You know, we all <laughs> hang out and we have fun. And I think that's what you need. I, I always try to do the, you know, approach politics as, as you know, the Ted Lasso you know, approach. And anytime I can just keep it positive and, and, you know, focused on what we need to do, it works out well. And, and so far, it's been a really great group with Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, Pete Aguilar at the top. Uh, and so I, I think folks, if they don't know the, those are leaders too, they should. So you mentioned Maxwell Frost. I got to ask, who else are your buddies in, in, in the 118th Congress? I mean, really, I, every single member of the freshman, you know, freshman House Democrats are just, just in a amazing group and everybody uh has has a great story and i, I think i think that the difference that, that i see is we all really like each other and on the republican side i don't see the same they're not having fun the, the republican house freshmen i don't think they really most of them really trust each other you know i spend a lot of time with uh you know folks like dan goldman you know maxwell is great for for live music talk about that all the time with him and and by the way I, you know we had we made some news today too i'm, I'm on the house financial services committee we're talking about live music and i knew that um jerome powell had just been to a a dead and company concert a few weeks ago here in dc and i got to ask him about that and, and i think what what i guess counts as news these days that he made some news that he's a, a big grateful dead fan for the last 50 years so if you don't know anything about jerome powell now you're now all your listeners know he also is a big fan of the Grateful Dead. That's hilarious. Did, did you ask him about this in 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 a, in a committee hearing on the uh, uh, in the House of Representatives? Oh yeah, no, it was it was you know uh, he comes to the House Financial Services Committee every you know twice a year. The last time he was he was here, uh, I didn't. I was so you know low in seniority to get to ask a question, so I was kind of near the top. And that's what I lead with. And what I try to do is is when I'm questioning witnesses in these committee hearings, I try to soften him up with something to humanize folks as best I can. And, you know, he was glad to talk about the Grateful Dead. So it, it kind of helped lead into the next, you know, questions about the economy. But, you know, you check it out. It's all over. It's all over uh, social media. And so, of course, we have to talk about North Carolina Republicans and their plans to once again gerrymander the congressional map. As we talked about on the down ballot before, Republicans flipped the state Supreme Court in November and very quickly in a totally lawless ruling, the brand new GOP majority overturned a previous ruling saying that partisan gerrymandering violated the state constitution, therefore giving the GOP a green light to completely wreck this very fair nonpartisan map that you were elected on. And we don't know how things are going to change. There's many, many different directions that Republicans could go with their new gerrymander. The only thing we do know is that they are certain to target uh, multiple Democrats who currently are members of the House in your state. So do you have any thoughts or any insights into what they might actually do to redraw the lines? And just overall, how are you approaching this challenge? Yeah, I mean, 
you know, it, it's certainly a, a challenge. And, and, you know, like I said earlier, North Carolina, we seem to redraw maps every two years. We might get maps that change again in the next, the cycle after next. But, you know, we, we don't have the Supreme Court anymore. And, you know, fundamentally, you know, the vast majority of voters support independent redistricting where voters choose their politicians, you know, not the other way around. And that's always been my position. So I think we start there. The extreme partisan gerrymandering is, you know, it, it may take some time, but eventually, you know, we'll go away and we will get fair maps all over this country. That's, I think, the, the number one thing we need to do. And we need to get around the filibuster in the Senate to make sure we get fair maps because that would change everything. Um, but but a lot there's a, there's a lot of good stuff in North Carolina. I think overall, you know, you're right. It's going to be bad overall for for Democrats in in North Carolina congressional seats. But um, we got a good Supreme Court ruling. Thank you, Brett Kavanaugh, on um, racial gerrymandering. So you know that's a good thing. That's going to make it harder for them to to um, waste Democratic votes. That's a good thing in North Carolina too. You know we've got. What, sh- what is shaping up to be the most competitive race, you know, for governor and for president in the country. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, I've talked to the President Biden about this, you know, the need to invest all the way in North Carolina, you know, and that would be a, a huge investment in, in getting folks out to vote. We got the votes, you know, if, if Democrats had voted in the same numbers as Republicans in the last election, um, Sherry Beasley would be in the U.S. Senate right now. I think we're going to see a huge investment in turnout in North Carolina. That matters. You know, and, and for us in the triangle, you know, we've got the we, what we believe is is one of the fastest growing congressional districts in the country, you know, trending, uh, you know, for Democrats in a major way. You know, so I think that that is important you know, for our area. But, you know, we, we know it's they're not going to they're not going to make it easy. And, and the thing that, that I just focus on is trying to, to work harder than anybody else. That's that's the way I approach politics. And, and I hope everybody out there who who works on campaigns, who does field, who knocks on doors, just knows, you know, if we continue to work harder than the other guys, we're going to be successful. And, and that's, you know, what got me to, to win this seat in Congress. And, and I think that's the approach, you know, that's going to best serve us as we try to do everything we can to, to hold this seat. And it's a seat that we got to hold to take the majority in the next Congress. So we're, we're, we're going to fight hard and uh, we're, we're hopeful that, that, you know, we're going to have, uh, um, you know, at least in our race, you know, a good competitive race where um, we're going to have a shot to, to hold the seat. There are, of course, a number of Democrats who hold pretty Republican districts, you know, Jared Golden from Maine, Mary Peltola, of course, from Alaska, and a number of other, you know, congressmen and congresswomen in very competitive districts. Have you spoken with any of them about, you know, the best way to go after Republican voters or, or ways to run in these really tough districts? Yeah, no, I, you know, I enjoy talking with, with Jared Golden, Marie Glaskamp Perez, you know, they, they, they have a good approach. Uh, you know, we share a lot of the same kind of insights on the best way to, to reach out to rural voters. And there's a lot of ground we can, we need, we can and need to make up with, you know, rural, rural folks, uh, you know, all over the country. And, uh, you know, you certainly can win these seats. Folks like John Tester, you know, a good example there. I think he's running for re-election in a seat that uh, the presidential numbers were, were pretty bad on the Democratic side. But, you know, they, they send him there and send him back. So, there are ways to, to win in tougher seats. We, we've got a lot of folks who've been doing that and uh, a lot of good lessons to learn. But really for me, you know, I think you just have to, the lesson I, I learned that I think best serves me, anybody who wants to do this is, that, you know, I worked for Al Gore, you know, I traveled with him. I worked for Barack Obama. The lesson I think there for, for Gore, who was a really wonderful guy, 
behind the scenes is is be yourself. And Obama was always himself, you know, on, on camera, off camera. And and I think voters have a really good bullshit detector. I just do my best to be myself, be genuine, talk to folks, you know, try not to use complicated words to describe the, the problems we face. And, you know, if you do that, I, I think you're, you're going to be successful in this business. So one thing I'm curious about, you talked about being a consumer of our data. Most of the politicians I've spoken to in my lifetime, they tend to be interested in their own election. They aren't necessarily election junkies interested in races around the country. So I'm really curious to know how you consume our data. How does it inform what you do? Like, Why do you like it so much? I mean, I think you have to just look at how other people win. And and so, you know, we when we, like you said, we thought, you know, we might be in a different kind of district. We looked at all the all the coverage you had of, you know, races like Jake Auchincloss, you know. So, you know, I, I think the more you can look at how other people are successful, you know, that, that helps. The data, you know, I, I think you, you want to get advantages in, in politics. You know, any, any way you can get an advantage by by talking to, to folks, you know, or, or, or campaigning in a certain way, you, you want to do it. And, and that's, you know, at least for me, the data shows you where good campaigns go. And the, the more I get, the better I can make decisions. But uh, please keep it coming. I, you know, I will, uh, I will, will, will be consuming every bit I can for, for house races, especially, you know, for those, those places like, you know, Jared Golden, Marie Perez, Marcy Captor, Mary Peltola. Those, those are ones that we, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at. And John Tester. Absolutely. Well, we have been talking with freshman Congressman Wiley Nickel of North Carolina's 13th Congressional District. We have absolutely loved having you on. Before we let you go, Congressman, where can our listeners follow you and keep track of your race? And if they want to get involved in your campaign, how can they do that? Yeah, you know, we really enjoy interacting with folks on you know social media. I'd encourage folks to to go to at, at Wiley Nickel on Twitter or Wiley Nickel NC on Facebook and Instagram. Our website is WileyNickelForCongress.com. Uh, you know, you can you can join the campaign. You can you know do remote call time. You can donate. Those are all great ways. But you know, I hope folks will will give us a follow and uh, and and take a look at what we're doing. You know, you can learn a lot about, you know, where the, the twists and turns will go in North Carolina, but uh, um, would uh, would love to, to get anyone involved in one of these toss-up races that, you know, really could be the difference in this next election. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us on the Down Ballot this week. Thanks for having me. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Congressman Nickel for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Walter Einenkel, and editor Trevor Jones. We'll be back next week with a new episode. 